0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Brian Adams, CEO and founder of PH Creative. Brian is recognized as one of the leading employer brand agencies in the world. PH specializes in building world-class employer brands, EVP, and talent engagement strategy for companies such as Apple, American Airlines, GVC, and Blizzard Entertainment. Brian is a two-times best-selling author, podcaster, and specialist speaker. His presentation style is energetic, passionate, thought-provoking, and interactive, so get ready to listen and engage. Here to share all that experience and knowledge is Brian. So Brian, my new friend, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Drew.
1: Looking forward to the uh, conversation today.
0: Yes, sir. So we took our stab at understanding a little bit uh, of who you are and what you do. But in your own words, how did this how did this
1: company get started? So uh, the company got started out of. Um, naivety <laughs> essentially uh, i was i was doing a, a day job working about 18 hours a day as a designer in a really small team and i loved what i was doing uh, i was 24 25 but i had a horrible boss and he was he was a bit mean <laughs> and one day he bowled me out in front of about 50 people made oh. me feel two inches tall um so i spontaneously stood up walked uh, out of the office, went home, and I started PH Creative the next day.
0: Wow. All right. So, was PH Creative already on your brain and that moment kind of catalyzed it, or did it come to you that quickly on the spot?
1: No, it, it was always something that in the back of my mind. But, you know, even at the age of 25, uh, honestly, it was that's what I want to do one day when I grow up. Um, so if it wasn't for that inciting incident, you know, I don't think I would have taken that step into entrepreneurial, um, you know, the entrepreneurial journey that, that quickly. And obviously now I'm glad I did, uh, it wasn't a great experience at the time, but it, it's what motivated me to take action.
0: Now you use the words inciting incident. Is that, are you familiar with Joseph Campbell's work? Is that where that's from? Or just, a I, term you know? I
1: love Joseph Campbell. I am a student of story. Yeah. Um, I'm very passionate about story structure. Yeah
0: what what initially drew you to story and joseph
1: campbell's work and and the like so so actually (laughs) i um i was having a conversation with a a good friend of mine who now works at my company as a, a film director and i was talking through some of my favorite movies and he said you realize they're all the same film right and i was like what what do you mean so then he explained the story structure I then rewatched a few of those movies and watched a couple of movies I hadn't seen before. And it completely ruined the experience of uh, (laughs) cinema because then you could start to second guess what was about to happen and all that kind of stuff. But that just sort of drew me in. And um, my big um, audacious, hairy goal when I one day sell PH is I want to make a a feature film. That's what it's all about for me. So I love writing um, film scripts on the side. We, We make little films inside of our company but commercially, um, but you know, that's, that's a goal for me. Wow.
0: Uh, well, now what What I found fascinating for me is like you said, the first thing was starting to see the, the, almost the formula. And, and I still think in some magic way, but like hmm. the storytelling formula that you see with Spider-Man, you see it with Alice in Wonderland, it's everywhere yep. in the Bible. Right. Um, but then when I saw it, or at least considered, does that overlap to the human story is where it really took on meaning to me saying, oh, oh what if we're telling these stories because we're talking about our story, mm-hmm. that we're all invited into this call to adventure and we struggle with it and many say no and regret it. And then you say yes, and you go into the underworld and trying to figure it out. I was like, that's where it came to life to me. It was like, I think I'm in the middle of this kind of structure, this story arc, right?
1: Oh, absolutely, and you know, the beauty of entertainment and seeing stories unfold in front of you is, you vicariously get to live the life of that hero without the risk and pitfall of the real danger in front of you, you know. So, um, you know, it resonates on, on some level, you know, and it is it is fascinating to me. And, and actually, I watched Top Gun 2 for the second time on Monday because um, I'm a big Tom Cruise fan and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Let's go. Um, you know, and the Top Gun 2 follows Joseph Campbell's story arc to the beat. Absolutely perfectly you know and, and i started to think about the similarities to top gun 2 and star wars and if you watch it again with that in the back of your mind it will blow your mind
0: wow i'm, I'm so excited my wife and i are hoping to see it this weekend we've been having trouble getting babysitters and that kind oh it's of thing, fantastic i can't wait i mean again i was a kid when the first came out and so yeah. i'm in that perfect target audience oh. of, it's got all the nostalgia for me and you know i can't wait to see it especially especially knowing someone like tom cruise has actually learned to fly planes and how far they went in the mm. realism versus green screen of all of those effects they were doing
1: and yeah uh, i just can't wait to see it it's probably the best sequel i've ever seen i think it'll wow. go down in history as you know that that level wow and
0: 18 mm. plus years later which is crazy too like however long no they, no Oh, shit, I was way off 36. <laughs> I just threw out a random number. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, even in that, I wonder how how often has that happened, that there was a sequel that was good that was 36 years later from the original. You know, that is – I think I looked it up the other day. I should have known the number, but he was 24 or 25 when he first shot that movie, and to still be able to play a similar role at 50-something, 59, whatever he is, uh, yeah. is pretty wild.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great – it's a great example of the long form storytelling, isn't it? You know, because that character, you know, is just as believable. It picks up in, you know, modern time kind of stuff. And, you know, I was thinking myself, like how many other movie franchises or characters, you know, could, could you could do that with, with the longevity, longevity you know, um, yeah. there isn't, there isn't many, but this, but this one pulls it off and it's fantastic.
0: So for your story, you have the inciting incident get berated in front of people realize Mm. this is just poor leadership this is not good culture humiliating people that kind of thing you step into creating your own story creating your own company you know typically in the story arc that's where you go through some version of the wilderness the figuring it out and the oh doubting ourselves and loneliness and uh, what was that in real life like what was that next chapter like for you
1: um, so I mentioned sort of naivety and it was just sheer sort of ignorance that got me through the first 12 months because I didn't know what I didn't know. I was literally starting from less than zero. It felt like I had no customers for a good six months. And it was it was really it was really tough. Um, and my experience in the job had knocked my confidence such that it wasn't that I was I had confidence. and I was being brave, a brave entrepreneur. I actually had a lack of confidence that secretly I didn't think I was going to get another job somewhere else. So I had to stick it out and sort of forge my own path. And, um, you know, I, in the early days, I, I still have I, I've got memories of not knowing how I was going to pay bills at the end of the month. You know, when I went from one to five people in the team, there was a lot of months where I thought, I just don't know whether I'm going to make the payroll, but we always managed it um and it was it was living from hand to mouth and it was a challenge the where it all turned for me quite early on I was lucky I was introduced to somebody who ran um a, a coaching group actually and we I did some mastermind sessions and it was all new to me I was like wow like you know it was like introducing fire um you know what? I can ask questions and people actually give me the benefit of their experiences is incredible you know wow um and somebody uh introduced me to to my first business coach and I was basically pouring my heart out to this guy and I was giving him all my problems. And at the end of it, he said, I think I know what you need to do. And he said, you need to double your prices. I said, you're crazy. Like, I'm struggling to find clients as it is. You know, this is just ridiculous, you know. But it was a, virtually like a last throw of the dice. So I doubled my prices and, and I actually ended up doubling the amount of clients that I brought on at double the price. And it was a, a transformational wow. moment.
0: Why do you think that was looking back on it?
1: I think it was um, a symptom of a limiting belief. Like I didn't, because I was, a, I was such a small business. I didn't put the appropriate value on the work I was doing and I was competing with price and, and what I was selling uh, at the time. It wasn't necessarily about price. It was about value um, mm. and, the, and the impact. So, I mean, I had a lot of I had a, a big lesson to learn there in terms of you know looking at the value you deliver not the time it takes to do the work and so on and so forth. And I was I realized now I was losing contracts because the quality of work was where it needed to be but I was too cheap to be taken seriously.
0: That's what I was wondering. I wonder if there's almost unknowingly communicating to the customer it must not be that good, regardless of how good the work looks. If he's at yeah. this price, right? It's a
1: it's a risk. Like it's you need to be slightly like reassuringly more expensive. You know?
0: How do you do? You have any idea of how you find that price? Because I'm sure whether it's you know pricing a product is one thing, mm. pricing your service. I feel like it's difficult to understand. Like what 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 do you measure it against? How do you know it's fair? Is it just by the reactions you get when you pitch it a few times? Like, yeah. so, what do you think?
1: So most of what I do is selling services. Um, you would think actually I haven't sold a service in many years now and I productize everything because from an operational efficiency perspective, it's really important to be able to have some sort of repeatable process to sell something effectively. I think you need to make it tangible. So the person in front of you can get the head around, okay, what am I going to get, you know, and, um, uh, a guy called Andy bounds he was um, the UK's number one sales trainer of the year for many years running um, One conversation with him many years ago it must be oh, getting on 15 years ago now. He said, look you know why'd you buy a newspaper? And I'm like uh, to read you know he's like no, you buy a newspaper for the news. you buy a lamp for the light like you're not buying it for the, the thing you're buying it mm. for for the for what he called the afters. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. So what, when I focused on the on what you get as a result of the service, then justifying the value was actually much easier.
0: I like that. And what just make sure that I and our audience understand what was the essence of at least what started, and then what is it now? But the essence of what PH Creative was, what were you offering to people?
1: So I was a, a general sort of marketing and design agency in the early days and now we've specialized we do exactly the same but in a very focused niche which we should talk about um because we've got a lot of growth and a lot of momentum from that perspective um, but yeah that, that's what we were offering so rather than a rate card of the things that we do and the price of them mm-hmm. we started to focus a we, it was just largely me focusing on the impact that my work would have on their business and the um the revenue or the time saving or whatever, focusing on uh, the impact of the work, not the work itself. That's how I quantified the value. And that's how I managed to sort of put my prices up and, um, and successfully start to scale on you know, in the, in the early days.
0: It reminds me of, well, two things. One in the hero's journey uh, type archetype, they talk about meeting the guides and the mentors, right? The people mm. that come along at the right time and have the encouraging word, the perspective, like double your prices. You know, um, I met one, his name's Dane Maxwell. I met him on the podcast actually. And he's just a phenomenal marketer. SaaS. he's sold multiple SaaS companies. And, um, he was asking me, like just trying to help me. I was like, man, we're stuck. Like we hit this level of growth and we can't get past it. And he said, tell me what you do. And he asked me very specific questions. Like talk to me like I'm a customer, tell me what you do. And at the end he goes, here's what I know, Drew, you are a phenomenal coach but you talk like a coach. He goes, do you speak French? I go, no. He goes, you also don't speak the language of results. (laughs) I go, oh, that hurts. He goes, you're not telling me, you're not telling me the results. You're telling me the how you're telling me the what he's like, all I care about is what is it going to do for me? And so he got very similar to what you're talking about. He started working with us. I'm like, what's the result that this person is going to get? And how can you talk about that in a clear and compelling way and then attach it to the so if it's that valuable then it's worth this much to you right and and it blew my mind because I was a practitioner meaning like I know how to talk to you about what I do Mm -hmm. and he was a sales or a marketer saying no but the customer only cares about what they're going to get from it absolutely
1: and you know Drew it's usually three or four layers down as well so you know if I say well I can give you an employer brand you'll say so what And I'll say, well, you know, you should care about that because you need to be able to articulate the employee experience. I don't care about that. So what? Well, the reason you articulate the employee experience is so you can better set people's expectations as to what it's like should they want to work for you. I don't care about that. So what? Well, you should care about that because if you can clearly articulate what it's like, then people can make better informed decisions as to whether to apply or not. I don't care. Well, if people can make better informed decisions as to whether to apply or not, you're not going to get a thousand resumes for every open role. And you're going to get people who know what to expect when they work for you. So they are going to stick around and do a better job. Oh, OK, that makes sense. And it's usually three or four layers after saying like, I don't care. So what? And you've got to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and and find the value. So that's that was a lesson for me. You know, it sounds like I went through a similar learning experience to yourself. You know, and the limiting belief sort of went up a little bit and that was great. Um, And then we went through the the next level of pain, which is actually quite funny. Um, We nearly went out of business because um, I had a debilitating fear of public speaking. And as the person that was primed to go out there and win business, I was avoiding business winning opportunities because I didn't have the confidence to stand in front of three or four people and pitch and all that kind of stuff or go into a networking room and network and be um proactive and you know I had a a, a fear of um public speaking so um I had a bit of an existential crisis one night in the office and I'm thinking what the hell am I going to do And I got an email. It's literally, it was like a, it was like a scene in a movie. Like as I'm asking myself these questions, I got an email that popped up to the top of my inbox. And I noticed it was a guy, it was a guy called Sam Avery. And I used to go to school with this guy 12 years earlier. So I just clicked on it while I'm feeling sorry for myself. And it said, um, are you suffering from a lack of confidence? I'm like, Yes do you need to get past this in order to grow your business or grow your career? I'm like, yes. Like, would you like to take action and do something about this now? I'm like, yes, <laughs> click wow. here and, and sign up.
0: Fantastic it's like, marketing email.
1: Oh my goodness. It was, um, yeah, it, it, it was unbelievable. It was like, like the timing was incredible. I signed up to this and what it was, was it was a stand up comedy course. And I did a stand-up comedy course for six weeks. And I swear to God, it was probably the best weight loss um, course. I I lost about about 18 pounds in weight (laughs) through sheer terror. (laughs) Because I had to write 15 minutes of my own comedy material. And to graduate, I had to perform in front of 300 paying members of an audience at a comedy festival. Oh, God. It was terrifying. And I was scared of presenting um, a sales presentation for something that I'm absolutely bulletproof with, you know, I know inside out. And here I am, I've signed up to this thing, which was just the most terrifying thing in the world. Anyway, long story short, I got through this, I delivered 15 minutes of comedy, not the best comedy in the world, but we got some laughs in the right places and so on and so forth. But coming off that stage, I was... Completely transformed, uh, and I'll never forget. Three days later, I had a sales presentation that I turned up to, and I absolutely knocked it out the park. I was, I was on fire that day. I had confidence. I was making people smile, and you know, using charm and reading the room, and all of these things. And it's all because of that that one moment. And I, I, I shudder to think if I hadn't have done that, what would have happened?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you went through. The true fire. I mean, oh, it was hell. public speaking it's, 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 is already the upper echelon of fear. Yeah, and then if you go inside of public speaking, comedy has to be the worst. <laughs> like, oh, it's, I do public speaking it, it, all the time. Yeah, and I, you could not get me to do that. My friend had this brilliant idea, and I'm so glad he did it for his birthday. He made all of us his friends who came to, for his, to his house for dinner and birthdays uh, do comedy. So we had our own comedy night, and <laughs> I didn't do it. I might be the most, I might be the most seasoned speaker of our group. And I was like, I was already stressed about work and whatever. I was like, Brian, just even adding the fear and worry of doing this. I know it's our best friends. I was like, I don't have the capacity right now. And they did it. I was so proud of them. Like it was, it was terribly funny, like terrible and funny, but man, for you to do that, for you to already be afraid of public speaking in general, and then to go to that, like you threw yourself in the deep end.
1: Oh, I I really did. And I regretted it every day for six weeks, but it was, um, this might sound like a sort of uh, exaggeration, but it was, it was a life-changing moment. I believe it. I I totally believe it.
0: Um, again, for me, even getting to where I am now, it was very similar to without comedy, but I failed public speaking at the college I went to because I couldn't get up and even talk. I would just turn bright red and forget what I was saying. And so I quit, like I failed because I basically dropped out of the class and, Mm -hmm. um, I had to just keep putting myself in these moments. I, You know, I, the way that helped me was when I was in a group setting, if I felt my heart racing, like we're talking about something, I started to take it as an indication I had something to say. Whereas typically I would be like, Oh, I, I shouldn't say anything because my heart's racing. And I was like, no, that means my body's trying to tell me it's time to participate. Yeah. And I just started working on like, just, all right, I'm going to, interject or I'm going to bring my opinion and stand in that opinion or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it led to more and more confidence in it's just wonderful. standing in front of a group of people mm-hmm. and sharing, you yeah. know, uh, but it changed my life because now it is probably the primary skill I have yeah. simply from, from learning to do that. Right. And so you talked about these limiting beliefs. I want to talk about that for a second. What do you think Are there any ways that you can think of that are helpful to discover what you might have that's a limiting belief and ways in which we overcome them? Because I believe we all have them. Mm -hmm. I totally believe that. I I think the imposter syndrome is real, and it's actually more prevalent the further up you go in success. Uh, It grows unless you know how to confront it. So I'm curious, any way to just like if I'm listening right now to take inventory and say, here might be somewhere worth investigating. I might have a limiting belief. And Mm -hmm. here's some ways I might think about overcoming that.
1: Yeah, so um, I I got onto this sort of thing that I used to do every year. I'd I'd take time in between Christmas and New Year, and I'd I'd write the sort of business strategy for the next 12 months. And, you know, business strategy makes it sound a lot more organized and sophisticated than than it actually was. However, what I used to find is if I'd I'd write this plan, uh, if I revisited it two or three days later with fresh eyes, it was never particularly ambitious. it was always within my comfort zone. So, so now every year without fail, I'll write an annual plan, you know, and sometimes we, we have a sort of three-year plan that, that we're working to, but um, you know, as the landscape changes. And I will purposely put it in a drawer for two or three days, come back and challenge myself to think bigger. And I never struggle or fail to be able to think bigger three days later. know um and when i look back on early days of virtually no growth whatsoever it was definitely because i was hitting the targets i was setting for myself but the targets were nowhere near big enough you know and i in the first six months of starting ph i wrote a list of brands for an exercise that i did uh some some it was a training exercise and i was asked to write a list of the 10 brands that i would one day you know love to work with and dream about and all the rest of it um and nike was number one on the list and right in that list and for many years after i actually never thought it possible like i just never thought it possible but 18 years after that about 2 months ago we signed nike on a global contract let's go and it's you know it's um it was a really interesting moment to think back at all the different mindset stages and all the rest of it. And I can't help thinking that if it wasn't for limiting beliefs in the early stages, like, could I have got there a lot quicker? And, and I th- I, I really believe the answer is yes. And the other thing that I often do is if, if Richard, if I was fired out of my role tomorrow and Richard Branson took the helm for 12 months, just how quickly would he accelerate and grow my business? Like right. overnight, like, you know, he would put me to shame in terms of what I've achieved and all the rest of it. And that's because he's been there. He's done it before. It's possible and all the rest of it. So I often try and put myself in those shoes and say, you know, it's, and it sounds ridiculous, but what would Richard Branson do? And it always forces me to think bigger. And and then you need to bring you your big dreams and plans Back to reality a little bit, but you know, if you're meeting the edge of reality with verging on the sort of ridiculous, you're probably at the cusp of where a vision or a big audacious goal should be.
0: I think about that all the time. I have a few friends that aren't that as successful, but they, I just, it's like your approach to just take the bull by the horns, let's just go for it, let's push the pedal. It's so much different than mine, and it can lead to different issues and all that kind of stuff but for sure they will blaze past trails that i've been slowly walking for too long and it's the most frustrating thing in the world i, I the first time i started re- realizing limiting beliefs were real is when you look in whatever field you're in and you see people that you would ob- objectively i mean it's very subjective but subjectively say are less talented than you but are more successful yeah it forces you to say what's going on like yeah. They are not as talented or qualified, but they're more successful. Nine times out of 10, they did more. They had more of a bias to action instead of thinking. And they had the confidence to take the shot, stand in the moment, make the ask, that kind of thing. And I'm like, that, that, what, then? what is that,
1: right? I think, I think that is super true. And, and now from experience, I would also add it is the rigor and discipline of routine. You know, I mean, Absolutely. you can be, you can be the world's most talented person at anything, but without the hard work and the continual progression of, um, discipline of, of a routine, you'll probably remain 99% potential, um, uh, you know, there is no silver bullet is there? you know,
0: yeah, there's, have you ever read, uh, Stephen Pressfield's work? Um, so. you're going to love it, especially with Pressfield, hero's journey. I'm going to write it down. Yeah, I love Steven, a good book
1: recommendation.
0: Stephen Pressfield with a V, not a PH. Stephen Pressfield. Um th- his kind of cult classic is uh The War of Art.
1: So, sorry, sorry, oh. sorry.
0: The Art of War. No, no, War of Art. Uh, the Lao War of Art. I have read that. Yeah, The
1: War yeah. of Art. Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. a brilliant book but I, I was forgetting the uh the author. Yeah, that's, yeah, I haven't read that for a long time. That's it's uh, probably one to revisit. It's one I've got
0: sitting right back there on my shelf because I – it that's It is just a reminder. I don't even have to pick it up anymore. It's a reminder of the word resistance Mm -hmm. and how his whole thesis is basically anything that is good, anything that is right, anything that is progress will be met with an internal resistance and we have to learn how to conquer resistance. And so that's kind of what we're talking about is that resistance exposes all of your insecurities, self-doubts, limiting beliefs, whatever. But he coupled that with exactly what you're talking about. He had this phrase called turning pro and he said... There's a, he said there's a watershed moment in someone's life when they go from an amateur in their pursuits to a professional in their pursuits. And he, so he has a whole second book called Turning Pro, which is equally good. And it's about all the shifts that you make from when you were like an amateur approaching your business to when you're a professional approaching your craft. Yeah. So he has a follow-up book called Turning Pro that is equally good, where he basically says there's a watershed moment in your life where you could point to and say, I used to approach this craft or this business or this thing like an amateur. And then I turned pro and I started what he talks about, like showing up consistently, putting Mm -hmm. in the hard work, transforming talent into its actual potential, you know, and that was, I was guilty of both. I was guilty of always letting resistance kick my ass and put it off till tomorrow, put it off till tomorrow. Or when I would approach it, I would approach it like an amateur, meaning if I felt like it, I would do it. If I didn't feel like it, I wouldn't do it. Um, And that was huge for me. I don't know if you've seen similar things in yours.
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, as you were talking there, the the thing that came to mind was uh, I set out to write a book. uh, Well, I've written two books now, but um, the first one, it probably took me three years and there was two and a half years of procrastination. And eventually I had a word with myself and said, look, you know, this has just been a distraction and noise for two and a half years and people, when you talk about it, are just they, their eyes roll and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what, you're writing a book? Yeah, neither am I. Good for you, you know. So I had to change behavior. And I ended up putting six months of hard work. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have a good team around me to, to help me with all the little aspects that I needed to put in that book. But it, it was um, the pride that I got after you know, the sense of achievement of putting that first yes. book out um was was profound the difference it had on the agency and the momentum it gave us um and what I saw as a step change the result of authority and brand positioning was like oh and I was mad at myself for years afterwards like why didn't I do that sooner and then my approach to the second book was a lot more focused and it felt like the first one I did it like an amateur the second one I did it like a pro and it was it was a very very different experience
0: I'm about to go through the same thing. So I, I wrote my first book a few years ago and it, same, it took me two and a half years and it was only about six months of writing, you know, same way. It was like two and a yeah. half years, but really if I condensed it all, it was like six months of writing. Yeah. Um. But I did, I felt that huge achievement. Like one of the, I had a friend, he's a, a really successful musician. And he said, man, you were, you were not thinking about this like a true artist. And I, Cause it was taking forever, taking forever, taking forever. And he said, you're thinking about like, this is your book, like the book. And he said, I want you to think about like, this is one album.
1: One, Absolutely. That's one album. a good way of putting it. That's fantastic. And he
0: said, the quicker you can get your first album out, you could be free to create your second album and your yeah. third album. And I was like, oh, I was putting so much pressure on like, this has to be the book with yeah. all my thoughts and with everything, you know, everything I know. And he's like, dude, it's your first album. Like, just get it out there. I mean, my first album sucked, you know. Like, just whether it's great or suck, like, just get it out there. And yeah. that just freed enough. That wasn't huge. It was enough of an unkink mm-hmm. to be like, yeah, it's okay. This can do whatever. But I need to get the first album out there.
1: Yeah, and that's a, another example of a different kind of limiting belief. You're putting your pressure pressure on yourself and thinking everything rests on this. Yes. But actually, just by putting something out there with your thoughts, you know, if it can coherently add value to a small segment of your audience, you're A number of steps ahead of your competition
0: yes absolutely now i'm curious on the second book what were some of the things that you look back on and say that was more professional me doing it that way was it structure was it discipline like what what were some of the things
1: so it was the rigor of the routine how i structured and planned out how i was going to approach it so i came up with the the concept i already knew what the concept was um planned out the chapter structure Wrote the bullets so I wrote it in pseudo first, and spent a lot of time getting the structure right before hmm. you know starting with the blank page and trying to write all the words. I already had confidence that the structure would flow really nicely, and when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking like I'm bulletproof. I know I know exactly what I'm talking about and all the rest of it. Yeah, that, that saved me a lot of time, and I actually had a couple of people look at look at it at the structure stage. And I got some really good advice on, well, actually, why don't you put that there and, there and then you've got to talk about that and don't assume this about your audience and all the rest of it. So the preparation, and you talk about preparation, you know, it's, you know, 99% of the game that felt good. And then it was just the discipline to quickly write the first draft. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just get it out of your head mm. and then rework it and all the rest of it. And um, so, so it's, I guess everybody's got a different process, but that really worked for me. Um, and I, I put myself under pressure to deliver it in a timely way and, you know, it, and it worked.
0: That's awesome. All right. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that to heart for sure. <laughs> now I want to get, make sure we get back to, cause you mentioned this earlier. What is the, what is the niche now that your business has turned into and how have you seen that, uh, benefit or catch momentum?
1: Yeah, so Drew, like, if there was one thing that your audience took away from this conversation, from an entrepreneurial journey perspective, it's the idea of finding your niche or niche, as the US market says, I think. Um, yeah, we do. Sorry, so <laughs> no, that's fine. <funny>. Um, there, <laughs> there's we we had like six million and one competitors as a general marketing agency. We had no real point of difference. You know, I thought we were great, but by and large. Outside looking in we were largely the same as everybody else. We were lucky and we got into employer branding as the um, industry was just emerging actually, but we overnight we went from literally millions of competitors to having 12 competitors globally. you know and then everything we were doing, um, we focused in this one space. So it was easy to build up momentum and build a reputation in this little category. That was growing and, you know, um, a rising tide raises all ships, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened. So, so now, you know, when we put our second book out in this industry, like we're seen as one of the founders in the space, you know, some of the advice we put in the book contradicts tradition and convention in the space, but it's been adopted by some of the biggest agents, the biggest brands in the world. And we are now part of the conversation at the highest level. And, you know, we're proud of that. We couldn't do that in, in, the, in the general marketing space. you know. Mm. Um, truth be known, like we got a couple of clients that were, needed help on the recruitment side of things, not marketing side of things. And we thought, okay, this is, there's something to this. But the biggest turning point for us was when we realized marketing directors don't answer the phone to us. But mm. when you ring up somebody's HR department, they're really nice and they speak to you and the, you know, they'll share the challenges and welcome you in as well. So, um, it was a little bit of dumb luck ignorance and sort of naivety and just the sort of timing really. But once we did see the opportunity to be fair, we doubled down hard and we've never looked back from a growth perspective. What
0: was it that, what, what data or what did, what stood out that helped you decide to niche in this versus niche down in this?
1: So we, we spotted an opportunity to take all of the services and products that we were already doing, but am trying to apply it to a general marketplace. And we could take that portfolio and, and that list of services and focus it in, a, in a, a different market that nobody else was paying attention to.
0: Was that the main thing was that this wasn't very crowded? You'd notice an opportunity there that felt a little more frontier?
1: yeah and we also felt that um we could do it better in this Mm -hmm. space you know there was the bar was lower the bar of like the sort of barrier to entry was virtually non-existent and the, the bar of quality in this sector was a lot lower so we could do a much better job and be above average you know now um i would say if McKinsey and Saatchi and Saatchi had a baby, you've probably got pH creative. That's kind of where we're at. And like, you know, like that kind of articulates sort of what we do. We would never reach those heights as a general marketing agency. It's just too big, too difficult and just impossible to climb.
0: Hmm. And it might not even be the business
1: you want to run. Well, exactly. But, um, it always makes me laugh. Like sometimes we, when we do town halls, we'll look back at who we were working with a few years ago and this, that, and the other. And I think it was uh, 2018 to 19. At the start of 2018, one of our clients was a local candy store. Uh, we had a dentist, a local uh, law firm, and clients of that nature. And then 18 months later, we were working with uh, L'Oreal, spec save it like you know and and they were brands that we knew and it was the first proof points of what the niche and specialism could really do for us
0: i love it i've mentioned this several times on the podcast we're still doing like i'm still needing to do this and work on this but every time that i have done like niche down it has always made me uncomfortable and it has always made me more money absolutely both have been true I always feel scared or I always feel like oh this is a risk and then it always ends up growing our business and so Mm -hmm. but it's like you get a meat amnesia and you're like (laughs) no no this time it's really stupid to to niche down you know (laughs) (laughs) so I'm I'm like convinced myself like nope we need to do it again you know we need to keep going more specialized um I'm curious for you when you look at the stage of like, how would you describe the stage your company is in now? And what are the challenges and opportunities that are in front of you?
1: Okay, so we've, we've just, we're, we're about 110 people across a number of countries now. Um, and we're probably, we've just punched through to the sort of Premier League, where we're seen as a credible global agency, winning work on a global level. So we're kind of the new kid on the block, doing things a new way um and we've still got the agility to move quickly deliver quickly um we're at that stage now where like i can't work on many live accounts anymore but the nike account and the ford account like um i'm in it you know yeah yeah so we're using the the middle sort of size of our uh, company to our advantage where we're capable of a global large projects um And you still get the principles. So you know, we we're kind of like um, the Rebel Alliance going up up against the Empire. You know, yeah, yeah. And we're using the agility and our size as an advantage um, because we've been beaten down for a number of years as we're sort of up and coming. As well, you know, we've got the global reach. We can do this here and like da 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 da. And now we're just getting to that point where we're a contender to be a real thorn in the side of the monoliths we would never, we never thought we'd get the attention of.
0: Yeah. I'm curious on the well, one. I love that. I love seeing agility and nimbleness, if that's even a way to conjugate that word uh, is an advantage because we always just assume that it's as you know, small or not, a, not as big as our competitor. And it's like, no, but we could also make change faster. And yeah. Yeah, we can. Absolutely. There's advantages to it. We can change fast. We can adapt. We could maybe even be bespoke in some areas that they can't. They just have their way of doing it. And, you know,
1: it's, it's, it's exactly that true. You know, and um, I don't know whether you read any of Malcolm Gladwell's books, but he tells sure. the story of David and Goliath. And when you read his version of David and Goliath, Goliath didn't ever have a chance of winning that fight ever. Mm. You know, he was never going to win that fight. David was going to win it all day long. Um, it's, you know, the odds were significantly in David's favor. And it's just fascinates me. And, you know, it fascinates me for a couple of reasons. One, what you categorically believe is quite often the reverse, the truth of it is quite often the reverse. Sure. You know, and, and two, you know, it taught me a really valuable lesson as to look, you know, you've got to play your own game and you've got to play the hand you dealt, you've got to play the strengths that you've got. And one thing that um, changed the trajectory of our agency forever a few years ago. And we've always been good at this actually. And uh, Dave, a partner of mine in, in, in the business, we love pitching and we love pitching when we're the underdog. Hmm. One thing that we realized many years ago is you're not pitching to a prospective client. You're pitching against your competition. Interesting. Those two things are very, very different. So we, we will intimately know the weaknesses of our competition And we will position those as part of our narrative and make sure that the one thing that when we walk out of that pitch room, they remember is, wow, you know, they made a real point of not to fall into this trap. Yes. You know, We definitely need to remember doing it that way. And then of course, the next agency to walk into that room will then say, we do it this way, which is the trap. So they counted out straight away. And we were, were very good a crafting a narrative that beats our competition, you know, it and also
0: shows domain knowledge, like that. You're not just knowledgeable about your process, but the, the options in general, and you can play that game of, I'm sure you've had this experience before where you, you go to pick up the phone and absolutely. You, no one's there because they're so busy and it's so big. You can't get a hold of who you want in that frustrating. That is frustrating. You know, absolutely. <laughs> you don't have absolutely. to name names.
1: You just, you know, the story, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and we'll say, well, look, you're probably seeing two other agencies and they're going to tell you this this and this and that's fine and that that conventional ways is is, is is okay and to a certain degree it kind of works when we do it this way this is what we learned you know you've got to watch out for this and this and this and this and here's here's how we overcome those things so you know if our competition hasn't even thought of those potential dangers pitfalls risks or whatever and then confirms that they are conventional um then suddenly we've got head and shoulders advantage and we, I love the art of the pitch. Yeah. It's it's a science and it's an art and it's a lot more than showcasing what you can do and all the rest of it, you know, even
0: the choice um, of words, the fact that you categorize
1: it as conventional is like a
0: subtle positioning of it in a, are you sure? Like, like ancient,
1: you know what I mean? (laughs) yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like telling a room of leaders that, you can do it this way, which is very tactical, but our approach is strategic. Yeah. Nobody wants to be seen as the tactical leader. Everybody wants to be seen as thinking strategically. Yeah. So straight away, everybody gravitates to the solution that you have now labeled physically right. as strategically. you know, Right. I think about yeah. the
0: same thing with safe and brave. Like, yeah, I could tell you if, if if you value safety, this is the safest choice you can make. But if you kind of value courage, you know, it's like, oh, of course. It's like, why do we watch Top Gun? We
1: like courage. It's, you know, we want I, I love that. I always I always ask in a pitch, how brave are you? Because we're yeah. gonna find we're gonna find out the answer to that. And it it simultaneously terrifies some people, but then it invites them and dares them to lean in. You know, and it's like this is a very competitive marketplace, and you're not gonna get there with safe. So you know, we need an element of risk. So Mm. how brave are you? Yeah. Calculated
0: risk. That's so good. Um, tell me this is there, uh, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but are you, are you not judging, but evaluating the fit of them as much as they're evaluating
1: the fit of you? So this is a really interesting one that's true because whether you are or you're not, you need to be perceived to be. Mm. So, When the penny drops with an audience in front of me, and they go, hang on a minute, you're sizing us up to see whether we're a good fit for you. It levels the playing field. Right. And another good example of that is, in my industry, there's a number of conferences. You can go on a circuit and, you know, there's the usual suspects of conferences. All of my competitors will have stands there. I will never have a stand at any of those conferences because immediately it labels me as a vendor mm. and the, the shift of who you want, like the balance is tipped, you know, they're up here and now you're selling to them. So if so I, what,
0: what are you at that conference? Just I'm on, on the, the stage. stage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there we
1: go. Yeah. I'm on the stage. If it takes a bottle of champagne or a, or a bowl of candy to try to get somebody to speak to me, like, I just don't want to be in that business, you know? Wow. So, 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 and that's our problem. We've, we've stuck to that and it's hurt us in some instances because, you know, when we haven't got the visibility in some respects on respect, but our brand positioning and what we stand for is unshakable. You know, it's, it's always the same we're either on on the stage, or we might be at a dinner or we might be networking or whatever, but we're never going to be stood behind a table, you know, with a tablecloth, a branded tablecloth and a bowl of candy.
0: Yeah. So it reminds me of a conversation with one of my earliest podcast guests. Uh, his name is Bert Soren, and he and his father are legends in the, um, the training space. So they create uh, like weightlifting racks and all these creative ways that you can make them more functional and get multi-use out of them, and they, they outfit NFL locker rooms and gyms okay. and all that kind of stuff, right? They're, lit- they're legendary, and they're like, man, one of our brand identities is we're not like the other guys. That we are creative we are innovative we're doing things differently so when they would go to trade shows the same thing they're like i'm not going to be at the booth next like there's this boring brand and then us so what they would do is they would just always throw the most epic parties that's what they got right. known for Love is it. they were like yeah we wouldn't have a if we're there we're just inviting you to our party we're not behind a booth or anything we're out there talking to people doing whatever and then people every it was like i can't miss like if we're going to the next trade show. We got to go to the Sore you know, find out <laughs> what Sore is doing because they're yeah. having so much fun. Yeah. And then they were creating friends. They were creating, you know, j- you know customers out of those interactions. Exactly. And I was like, I've never thought about that. Like, taking what is the message I want to convey if I'm going to be at a networking thing? You Absolutely.
1: know? Absolutely. It's got to be on brand and then, you know, back to that consistency because it's memorable then. um So I, I love that. I think that's when you're doing a, fun. sorry to interrupt you, but when
0: you're doing a pitch, and we talked about trying to create that even playing field that even if you're not necessarily sussing them out that you you really do think they're a good fit for you are there questions you ask or are there things that that at least make it feel like imply like yeah i'm feeling you out as much as you're feeling me out
1: oh well, yeah absolutely and you know you know most of the time it is authentic and now thankfully we're in a position where we can pick and <laughs> choose by and large with who who to who to work with um, we always present, these are our values. This is what we believe in. This is how we operate. This is what to expect when working with us. And we will talk about the top three reasons not to choose us. I like that. I like that in a, in some
0: ways like pulling away. Right. You're saying like, yeah, this might be, this might not be a good fit for you. You yeah. know, if, if these are, if this is true of you, it's not a good fit for us. And they wait, wait, no, no, we, we are like that. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it does remind me of dating. Like, one, you're looking for a partner. So, like, if you if this is gonna be a good relationship in business, it should feel like a partnership. It shouldn't feel like a master and a servant. And it's the same thing in dating. Like, if you're the one <laughs> for that attention, and please consider me, and th- it's like, well, what kind of relationship are you forming?
1: You right? It's exactly that. And how you start those relationships dictates how they flow. And how, you know, and if you don't get off to the right foot, it uh, can be painful on both
0: sides. Absolutely. I know that we are running out of time here. Um, I'm going to save us the the lightning round questions because we're coming right up here on time. This conversation has been so valuable. If you could leave just, we'll we'll end with this. If you could leave with just uh, one thought for our audience. You know, we're out in a pretty crazy market right now and things are feeling unknown. What maybe encouragement or thing to think about would you give us?
1: So apart from the idea of always thinking bigger, um, I would leave an audience with, Don't underestimate the generosity of people around you. You know, Mm -hmm. there's people around you that might have the answers to the questions that are keeping you up at night. Be curious and be courageous enough to ask for help. Ask the universe, ask the people around you, reach out on LinkedIn. And people are quite often really nice and they surprise you. Um, And it could just be the the quickest route to success or just to put your mind at rest that you're making, uh, you know, the right decision. So it, it would be that.
0: Heck yeah. Well, Brian, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for showing up and giving us your time and your wisdom. Oh,
1: my pleasure, Drew. Thanks so much.
0: Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.